if you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. Welcome to Considering Catholicism. I'm Greg Smith, your guide to the faith, life, and civilization that is historic Catholic Christianity. Let me read you a short story. Now, don't worry, it's an extremely short story, only 120 words, but immensely powerful. It comes from St. Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. Some scholars have suggested that Paul may be quoting the words of one of the earliest Christian hymns, but whether or not, these 120 words form a narrative arc from the highest place in the cosmos to the lowest place and back to the highest place again. So, here's the story from Philippians 2. Jesus Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And so, Jesus Christ has been exalted by the Father, and given a name above every name, and every creature throughout time and space, past, present, and future, in heaven and in hell, shall kneel and acknowledge that He is King of the universe. Now, I share this with you because this episode is being released the week before the season of Advent begins. And on the last Sunday before Advent, the Church celebrates the Feast of Christ the King on the liturgical calendar. So Corey and I sat down to talk about this feast. Where did it come from? What does it mean? And how do we celebrate it? Take a listen. And remember that whether you're listening to this episode the week before Advent or in the middle of July, our Lord Jesus Christ is always King of the Universe. And if you have any thoughts, questions, or suggestions, please send me an email, greg at consideringcatholicism.com. So, Corey, every field, whether it's airplanes or architecture, has its own terms and lingo and vocabulary jargon, jargon, right? I mean, you know, in the Navy, it's not a door, it's a 
it's a hatch and that's not a wall. It's a bulkhead and everything, you know, it's not right and left. It's starboard and port. So I think one of the things when people encounter the Catholic church is it has 2000 years of, of vocabulary and jargon. And mm-hmm. for those listeners who are uh, not familiar with all the jargon in the Catholic church, they hear the term feast day and they might be excused for thinking that's where you gather and, and, it, you, and you eat roast beast or something. Right. Sure. Right. So why don't we start off by you explaining for our listeners what exactly in the Catholic Church is a feast day? Yes. So feast days, um, there's there's a that's a general term. There are, there are different kinds of them, but in in general, a feast day is an observance on the liturgical calendar. Um, so it's going to commemorate a saint or an event in the life of Christ or the Blessed Virgin. Um, so there's going to be a particular readings and prayers for the mass on that day. Um, and some of them culturally are big deals and people celebrate them, especially the, the greater ones. Um, but many, like for example, Easter, Christmas, um, those are the ones that everyone would know. Sure. Um, but there are, there are other major ones on the calendar as well. And so certainly celebration is often a part of that, but it, it, it may also be, it's, it's the feast of St. Thomas Aquinas or it's the feast of St. Maria Goretti or something where it's not necessarily something that's going to be widespread jubilation in the streets everywhere, but it's how the church remembers and brings to mind um, these different um, saints or events in the life of Christ for us to, to contemplate annually. So etymologically, why is it called a feast day? Um, well, it's, it's related to the word festival um, that ah, we also have in English. There we go. Yeah. So. So I believe that's Latin in any case. Um, so we eat roast beast at a festival mm-hmm. and that's why we call it a feast. But like uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a feast of like the eating roast beast stuff. It's just, it's a festive occasion where we, right. cele- we celebrate right. something. E- exactly. And, and of course, what we consider as feasting, like, like a meal c- could be a part of that. Um, and a lot of right. them especially in certain Catholic cultures, will have traditional foods or something right, associated Right, but that, that's sort of the it, English but. association of that word. Mm-hmm. So what we really are doing on a feast day is we are, are it's, it's a festival that, it, so it's essentially a day that we celebrate some person or event or something important. Right, yeah, and it's the that's focus. That's sort of the Latin etymology. Yep, exactly, and it's the focus of the church's prayer for that day. Go like ahead. Festivus. <laughs> if that helps you. Um, so, th- so there are three different categories and historically there have been different ways of categorizing them, but the, the church has a, has a simpler um, way of categorizing them now. Um, so the, the sort of lowest or, or least important kind is called a memorial. Um, so most of the feast days of the saints will be memorials. And it's not that they're insignificant, but they don't have the, the greater significance of something like a feast, a feast proper sort of feast with capital F. So for example, I mean, I'm just trying to help people yeah, wrap their yeah. minds around this. Uh, we might say it's the memorial of Saint so-and-so. Right. Which is, it's not their birthday, but it's not mm-hmm. unlike the way we might recognize that it's so-and-so's birthday. Right. So we might say, for example, like in the United States, do we still do a Lincoln's birthday or what? No, it's President's, President's day, day. Yeah. But right. Or Veterans Day or whatever. Martin we, Luther King Jr. Day. Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like it's, we recognize that day sort of as a memorial, um, something like a birthday or a memorial day. And, and so practically in the Catholic Church, 
that's what you're saying is some of these right. days are, are just basically a recognition of that. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so, and so in the mass or in our day, there's in, a- In the liturgy a, of the hours, the prayers for the different parts of the day. There'll be a prayer for that person or that event or whatever. Right. Asking for their intercession in the case of a saint okay. or or um, it's just related to their particular virtues. Okay. So that that's a memorial, the lowest yep. category Memorials. of feasts. And then feasts, kind of feasts proper with a capital F are- uh, feasts of Christ, so like the Transfiguration is in this category. We have feasts of the Blessed Mother. Um, we also have kind of your your top tier or foundational saints. So like the apostles have a feast. So feast of Saint Peter and Paul. Right. Feast, feast of, of Saint Andrew yeah, is coming right. up at the end of November. Yep. Um, Andrew the Apostle. Um, so you have those where it, it's of more foundational importance to the to the church. And then you have the... Oh, and just as an oh, yeah. aside, right? So we have a couple of those that are actually dedicated to buildings. Exactly. Yeah. Right? So mm -hmm. there's the uh, there's the feast uh, associated with uh, the Basilica of St. Mary Major in Rome. Right. Yeah. So there are several feasts that are the dedication of certain basilicas right. or cathedrals. Exactly. These holy ce events. Celebrating yeah. or, mem or memorializing the dedication of these mm -hmm. significant... Right. Um, landmarks. Right. And there are ones for the universal church, like you said, uh, St. John Lateran in Rome or St. Peter's Basilica, St. Mary Major. But um, dioceses will have these as well. Like our, our diocese has, has a feast for the dedication of our diocesan cathedral. Um, so some of it's universal, some of it's local, um, but always universal, um, these solemnities. Uh, so these are the most important. So the, the, the highest one is, of course, Easter. Um, second to it is Christmas in, in the Catholic calendar, but then you have, um, several of them dedicated to the blessed mother. So you have, um, uh, mother of God, which is January 1st. You have uh, immaculate conception, um, which are, is in December. Aren't there what? Eight solemnities on the calendar? It's, it's not a huge number. I think it's eight, yeah. eight or um, eight or 10. It, no more it, than it's that. only the most important and the most holy, um, events of Christ's life and of the, the most important saints. So Mary, and then we have one for St. John the Baptist. Now, if it's a solemnity, it has uh, a couple of things attached to it, right? I mean, mm -hmm. first of all, the, the, the priest wears white as a liturgical color, mm -hmm. right? Yep. But it's also uh, our solemnities days of obligation. You know that, I mean? that can vary a bit based on um, the diocese that you're in, but most of them are. So what's a day? What is this? Yep. Uh, what is that? So a holy day of obligation, the, the church recognizes that this is something that's really important for the faithful to, um, to celebrate every year because it, it emphasizes a, a foundational part of the faith, Easter, the resurrection, Christmas, the birth of Christ. Um, and so the church requires or obligates the faithful to, to participate in the mass on that day. Um, it, it's, I mean, when you say mandatory fun it kind of sounds bad but like really the church is saying rejoice this is a big deal well you, you we should want you, you should yeah. be in church on easter right and right. the church says if you if you don't go to church on easter it is it's a sin right yeah for which you have to go to confession because mm -hmm. you should have been in church to celebrate the resurrection and you weren't and right. you of course you can go to confession and receive absolution for that but but yeah. It's a sin not to be there. So, so this is the thing, right? And I mean, there's Christmas and Easter, but there's, you know, another mm -hmm. six or eight of those events throughout the year. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and this is a slight digression, but I actually found that to be an attractive thing when I was considering Catholicism. Because it's like there, the, the church expects something of me and the, the church is willing to say like, no, this is important. You need to actually show up. And, oh, oh, yeah. And it's I mean, not optional. We've talked about that before. Yeah. And, and I know that 
Ed and I have talked about that in some of the episodes I've done with Ed, that, that I like that personally, one of the attractions for me to Catholicism is that the Catholic church treats me like a grown up. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it expects me, it expects things of me. And, and, you know, this isn't works theology or whatever, but it expects me to, act. my boss expects me to show up to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, the government expects me to pay my taxes. Uh, the church expects things of me because it treats me like a responsible grown up. And yeah. It, that, that it, it says that living the Christian life, there are certain requirements and also that living the Christian white life isn't a solo affair. It's, it's done in communion with the whole church. And so sometimes that means showing up to mass. So a feast day, to summarize, comes from this Latin root word that has, that means a celebration or a festival or, mm-hmm. or whatever, a commemoration. Um, we have these different categories, the highest of which is a solemnity, mm-hmm. which has obligations attached to it. Right. Priest wears white. You're supposed to be there. You know, you, you, need, you need to be there. Now, we are approaching just such a solemnity. Mm-hmm. And it occurs now, we're recording this on the 15th of November uh, on a Tuesday afternoon. But this Sunday is one of those solemn feasts. Indeed. And it is the feast of... Christ the King, or the full um, title is the Solemnity of Our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the Universe. Now, which is very impressive. It is a cool, yeah, that's a super cool name. Um, shortened or often called the Feast of Christ the King. And, mm-hmm. and it's sort of interesting because it's celebrated in some Protestant denominations. Right. They still use liturgies, and not all of them do, but the origins of this are Catholic. Now, um, my Protestant friends would say, well, you know, it's not a Catholic idea that Christ is king of the universe. And of course, that's not. All Christians of good mm-hmm. conscience or you know, Orthodox Christians believe that. Nevertheless, this particular feast day was created, instituted, instituted yeah. only a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. So it is not an ancient feast, although the idea of Christ being king of the universe is an ancient idea that goes back to a biblical idea, a biblical idea. And it goes back to the generation of the apostles, but as a feast on the liturgical calendar, it's only a hundred years old. So why don't you tell us the story of how it came about? Absolutely. So, um, we have to go back to 1925. Um, it's, uh, the reign of, uh, Pope Pius XI at this time. Um, and the, the background or the context of what's going on in the world at that time is, is vital for understanding why Pope Pius decided to, to create or institute this feast. And in fact, in the, in the document instituting the feast, he, he talks about this quite, quite a bit, um, that his reasoning has to do with contemporary events. So 1925, uh, World War I is very recently in the rearview mirror. Um, uh, you have uh, the, the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia that has just happened. Um, you're having events like that happening in other places, either shortly before this or are going to, you know, are building up and are going to start happening in other places um, shortly after 25 in, in Mexico and in other places like that, where there are regimes arising that are um, explicitly hostile to the church. This is the period in which the, the Nazis are starting to rise to power in Germany, and that's a, a regime that's hostile to the church. Um, and then you have it just in the Pope's backyard you have the not so um, long ago reunification, well, not even reunification, just unification of the Italian peninsula under one government um, and this ongoing conflict between 
the Pope and that government. If I can just kind of summarize that a little bit. Yeah, go ahead. So, you know, for some of our listeners, it's hard to sort of wrap your mind around this, but what happened after World War I or what World War I in some sense, uh, I don't know if it did it or it was the culmination of things that had been long brewing, but basically the the world order as it had been for centuries collapsed. Mm -hmm. And if you looked at all around the world, most of the great powers of the world came to an end. So as you say, in Russia, the Russian empire under the czars, things collapsed, the Bolshevik revolution, communism, Turkey emerges from the collapse of the Ottoman empire. um, And that changes the world fundamentally in the Eastern Mediterranean. This is sort of the the final um, act or the the very end of the Austro-Hungarian empire, what used to be the Holy Roman empire. The German Prussian states collapse. Um, France goes through major turmoil. Italy, which like most people don't realize, had never been a country mm-hmm. until the mid-19th century, late 19th century. It had always been a place, a region since the time of the Romans. It had never been, there had never been a country called Italy any more than you might think of, say, Central America. And you say, well, Central America is a, is a place. It isn't a country. Right. right. And in Italy had been a, a bunch of countries that were on the boot but they had formed together. Those all collapsed. And, and these new countries, Mexico is collapsing. So yeah, all around the world, the, the Spanish are collapsing. And specifically, the Catholic powers are either becoming yes. not Catholic powers anymore or are breaking up. Right. And what's replacing them is radical, as you say, secularism, okay? Mm-hmm. A, a repudiation of not only Catholicism, but really a repudiation of Christianity. These are What's replacing these fallen empires are, is, is truly anti-Christian. So it's either communism in some places, it's fascism, it's national socialism, and there's massive persecution of the church, of Christians of all kinds going around the world. And, you know, people at that time, especially Christians, Catholics, are looking and saying the world has burned down. The world order has burned down. And we are bereft and lost. Uh, as you say, the, the communists are rising in one place, the national socialists in another. Uh, you know, um, everywhere you look, um, the world is in turmoil. And, and it's hard to imagine standing there in 1925 what the rest of the 20th century is going to look like and what's going to emerge in place of all of that. And in the midst of that, this gives, as you say, the context for Pius XI to declare this feast. Right. So, so Pius XI is looking around at the world and seeing this situation. Um, he actually just personally had a, had a great devotion to Christ as king. Um, I believe his, his papal um, motto was the, the peace of Christ in the kingdom of Christ. So this is a, personally important for him. And he's looking at the, towards the end of the liturgical year, which is always um, a time when the church is drawing our attention to the last things, to to death and judgment. Just, just real quickly, also for yeah. our listeners, the end of the liturgical year isn't necessarily the end of the calendar. Right, and I was getting to that. So, so the liturgical year begins with Advent, um, which is always at the very end of November, beginning of December. And so, the end of the liturgical year is is basically the month of November, um, the the last couple weeks uh, there. And so, at that time, the church is always drawing our attention to the second coming. Um, to Christ's lordship over history. And, and so what Pius does is he says, I'm going to institute a, a feast explicitly about Christ's kingship 
I'm going to put it in this part of the liturgical year on a Sunday so that all of the faithful will be in attendance for it because Sundays, like we were talking about with Holy Days of Obligation, the, the faithful are, are expected to be at Mass. And so we're going to annually draw to mind in a, in a very specific and tangible way that Christ reigns from heaven. He is the ruler of the universe. Whatever things are happening here, whatever the political situation may look like, um, and it did not look good at that time, um, Christ is king and we, we can recognize his kingship as you know, the full, full fulfillment of that coming at the end of the age, but also that he reigns now and that the, the church is the expression of his reign in, in the present moment. So there's this big fancy theological word, eschatological, mm-hmm. which has a Greek root, but basically means the end times right, or right. the end, looking towards you know, the end of the world or the second coming of Christ and the restitution of the world or restoration. Um, and, and, you know, when you look in scripture, you go into the Old Testament and you look at eschatological process, uh, 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 passages there, mm-hmm. Daniel and some Ezekiel and Isaiah. Lots and other, of the prophets. Yeah, you know, yeah. A lot of the prophets are looking forward to the end. And then you look in the New Testament, some passages in the Gospels and some couple of passages in the Epistles. And then, of course, the book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. You always have this sense that there are the kingdoms of the world, right? And they rise and fall. Mm-hmm. Kings have risen and fallen. Emperors rise and fall. Powers, structures, principalities, movements, uh, you know, ideas, all of the stuff of the world. But behind them and above them is Christ, the ruler of the universe. Mm-hmm. And that is the reality. And what really the prophets do in those prophetic passages in the Old Testament, and then in, in a sense, in the New Testament, where there's prophetic eschatological you know, passages, ultimately the book of Revelation, is they, they sort of pull back the curtain, mm-hmm. you know? It's almost like a, a Hollywood movie set, you know, where it all looks like this, but then when you slide, turn on the lights and slide it back and everything else, you see it for what it really is. Right, right. And you see what it really is, is that over, above, and under all is Christ as the king. And I want to read a passage that's always been super important to me. Uh, it's in Paul's letter to the Colossians, mm-hmm. Colossians chapter one, just to six verses here. But I think this is, this really captures what this is all about. So Colossians one, uh, 15 through, uh, 20, St. Paul writes, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation for in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him, to reconcile himself to all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Mm-hmm. And what the prophets have always said is you pull back the curtain and you see the universe for what it is. It is the supremacy and the, and the kingship of Christ. And so what I hear you saying, you know, is, is Pius XI, Pope Pius XI in 1925, looked at the world was burning down. Catholics were 
terrified. The world was terrified. It looked like, you know, in some ways, if it was 1925, it probably looked like we're not going to make it through the 20th century. Well, and then look what the 20th century looked look like afterwards. Right. And, and so uh, looking forward, he said, hey, let your heart not be troubled. Because yes, as the kingdoms of the world burn down and, and new tyrants and kings and awful empires and nations, whether that's, you know, Stalin or Hitler or the terrible things that are taking place all around the world, remember behind them, they are petty tyrants and their time is short because in the end, our confidence is that Christ is the king of the universe. And that's the statement I think he wanted to make with mm-hmm. this. You, you read the motu proprio that he wrote. For yeah. This. Yeah. No, that is definitely a big part of it. Um, and cause, cause there's two dimensions there or, or kind of a, a tension because um, you're, you're highlighting the sort of hiddenness of Christ's kingdom. And that's definitely part of it. One of the gospel readings um, that's read in, in one of the years for the, for the feast um, is uh, where uh, Jesus is talking to Pilate and he, he has that line of my kingdom is not of this mm-hmm. world. Um, and so there's a, there's a hiddenness or a, or a, um, a fut- futurity to the fullness of the kingdom. But there's also the sense in which Christ is reigning now over all of creation and that it is the, the task of the church and of the individual Christian to, to make that, that rule uh, known um, and to, to try to, you know, live out his will as it is in heaven, um, as, we, as we say in, in the prayer. Um, but then there's, a, there's another sort of, I don't know, uh, paradox or, or tension there. Um, that Pius talks about that that's really highlighted in the scripture that you read is the 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 senses in which Christ is king, um, because as the scripture mentions, it's it's partly or or maybe primarily foundationally that he is God and creator, and so he is by nature king over all. But then the the scripture from Colossians also talks about his his crucifixion and his resurrection, um, and the the fathers of the church and then Pius the eleventh echoing them talk about how, in a sense, that's how Christ comes to be king of creation through conquest that of his, his victory over sin and death and the devil um, is a, a, another aspect of his reign. Um, you could even uh, walk it back a little bit and just talk simply about the incarnation, the fact that God has united himself with his creation, has taken on a body, has become a creature, is is a, is a way of claiming authority and kingship over that creation in a different way as well. Sometime another time, we'll talk about the different ways that the church over the centuries has looked at the redeeming power of Christ. Oh, you mean like atonement theories? Atonement theories. So you, you know, you have, uh, you know, what we're most familiar with is a substitutionary atonement model. But of, the, of course, what you're talking to here is, is one, the old Latin term was Christus Victor. Mm-hmm. And so there's different ways to look at that. But in all these different ways, the important thing is that Christ is the king. And just one little aside, when you talk about Pius XI and all the things that were happening in Italy, one of the things I think is super interesting about this is in 1925, the, uh, the Pope is still also the civil authority, the civil ruler over something that were called the, the papal states. So it's a, a region, maybe a hundred mile radius around Rome um, that he still had some control over. And it kept, kept getting parceled out and shrunk. And right. Shrunk it was an ongoing conflict yeah, with it, Italy. It, yeah. it, right. And so I think by 1925, it was down to just basically the area immediately around Rome. 
Uh, but the Kingdom of Italy or the nation Republic of Italy in 1925 actually had its capital in Florence mm -hmm. and it wanted to, to have civil control of the city of Rome. And so just a couple of years after that in 1929, they negotiated the final Lateran Treaty, which meant that the Vatican, uh, what was it, 118 acres or something, it's like the size of a golf course, uh, became an independent country uh, mm -hmm. in and of itself. But the rest of the city of Rome and beyond is, is um, under the authority of the Republic of Italy. Mm -hmm. So it's just interesting because the faithful were looking at this and it felt like even the church, even the Pope was going to lose um, his independence and, his, and, and the status of the church. And so in the midst of that, you know, that, that Roman question, that Lateran Treaty question comes this issue of let's remember that Christ is still king. Right, because under whatever circumstances, whether the church is, is powerful with all of the pros and cons that that brings, or whether the church is persecuted or does not have temporal authority, again, with all the pros and cons that that brings, Christ is still king, um, and he's still reigning, and he's still victorious. Now, our sharp listeners, which, is, which are all of them, <laughs> will recognize as we're describing what was going on in 19, the 1920s, feels in many ways eerily similar to what's going on 100 years later in the 2020s. As you look at the world order, and it feels like um, so many things that we have counted on in the world order feel like they're pretty shaky right now. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that there's a lot of anxiety about uh, empires and nations and, and global resets and global order and where it's all going and what's going to happen. And if, and if Pius XI was concerned uh, that, that Christianity had less influence and was, it was influence was waning in 1925, <laughs> you want to kind of go back in a time machine and say, <laughs> you, you think that, that 1925, <laughs> let me tell you what it's like in, in 2022 or 2025, the, the church's influence feels even less today than it was 100 years ago. All that to say, this feast and the things that prompted it, it feels j just ever or maybe even more relevant today. Well, and I think part of why the Pope in his wisdom put this feast on the calendar is that, yes, it felt very relevant at the time. But you don't put something on the liturgical calendar unless it's perennially relevant, unless it's always going to matter to the faithful and unless it expresses some timeless truth of the faith um, the, to different degrees. But the world is always going to feel like it's in chaos and like things are changing and like um, the, the church is threatened. And th this is just a, a fact of life until Christ does come back. Um, and so, you know, for however long until he does, the feast will of his kingship is always going to be relevant. Right. And I mean, we could go throughout that history. I mean, the world is always falling apart, um, but sometimes it feels like it's falling sometimes, apart faster uh, than others. And when, yes. it, and when it comes to sort of Christianity's influence in the world being on the wane, you know, we were certainly living in a down cycle at the moment uh, in the world today. And so I think uh, all that to say that it behooves us to remember, as this feast reminds us, that despite what you see around the world and despite what's going on and despite the pretensions and the arrogance of the kings and powers of this world, uh, behind them and above them uh, is always Christ, the, 
how, how does the phrase go? The king of the universe? Do that one again. Our, our Lord Jesus Christ, king of the universe. Our Lord Jesus Christ, king of the universe. And so the feast of Christ king. So it's, it occurs uh, this year. It occurs this Sunday. Well, always occurs this Sunday, but right. It's the last the, Sunday before the last Advent. Sunday before Advent. And mm-hmm. so as we're recording it, I'm going to get this episode out here uh, this week so that those of you who are listening to it uh, here this week know that this feast is coming up this weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're listening to this at some point in the future, it'll come up. <laughs> like we said, it's always relevant. Every year. <laughs> so, but uh, how can, what, what kinds of things can people expect in, in church if they go to mass this week? And how can people, from your perspective, how can we and our families maximize the value of this feast? Certainly. So some of them we've already mentioned. Uh, so this is going to be um, celebrated with a, a certain amount of pomp in the church. So we're, there's going to be either white or sometimes gold or silver vestments and colors associated with this feast, um, as with feasts of Christ in general and the solemnities of the year. Um, there's going to be readings um, and prayers in the Mass that are going to be about it. This year, um, we have an Old Testament reading that's about David's coronation as king. Um, so it's uh, making that connection between Christ's kingship uh, and, and David's kingship before him. I think we actually have that Colossians reading as as our second reading. Um, I would be. I, I, I didn't. I didn't look at the readings, yeah. but I was. I, I'd be I might, surprised. I might be wrong, but I. I think I. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's the one that I would pick, but nobody asked me. Yeah. But um, if I was going, if I was making the lectionary, it's the one I'd pick. Yeah. Well, we'd have to actually check the lectionary. I. I think it's that passage, though. Um, and then the gospel um, that we're going to hear is um, Christ on the cross and mm. um, them mocking his kingship. Yeah. Um, but then his dialogue with the thief um, and saying the thief saying to him, um, uh, remember me when you come into your kingdom and Christ affirming that saying today you'll be with me in paradise. He's, he's proclaiming his own kingship from the cross where right. he conquers as king. Um, and so all of that, of course, um, I would certainly recommend um, going to mass. Um, if you're Catholic, I'm not just recommending it. Get, get there. Yeah, you have um, to. You have to. You're supposed um, to. Uh, and and then further reflection on those on those readings and prayers is is always a wonderful opportunity, especially on these major feasts. Um, I, I especially on the solemnities, I I recommend actual like festivities with your with your family. Maybe um, you know some kind of dinner or or you know some however you celebrate. When you celebrate, I think it, it makes sense to 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 decorate and to to really um, sort of celebrate the day that is is in fact important. Um, and then before Advent begins, and we kind of um, tone that down before before Christmas. I think I'd also say that if you are looking at the news, uh, there, there's this term I love, um, doom scrolling. Yes. Right. So you're like scrolling on your phone or your tablet or whatever through the news. And it's like, oh, this is terrible. This is terrible. So if you're doom scrolling through the news, right. Um, what I would say with, with this feast is, this is my badly mixed metaphor is, uh, the words of Lady Macbeth, which is a uh, screw your, cur- screw your courage to the sticking place. And, uh, and, 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 and buckle up, stiffen your spine and remember that Christ is King. And no matter how, uh, doomish the doom scrolling seems, uh, nothing can take that away from us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It brings an eternal perspective, um, to, to the everyday, to the news. Um, one thing that the Pius XI recommends, um, and, and that would also make sense 
to take advantage of the feast is simply reflection on how you are being obedient to Christ as King in your own life. Are, are you um, being obedient to him and how you use your time and how you use your money in your relationships, in your mind, in your heart, taking it as an opportunity for examination of conscience. You know, that's, I think, super important because I think one of the things that we can tend to fall into is that we, we sort of treat this like sort of celestial politics. Like we believe in Christ as King, but we don't live that. Mm -hmm. And so it's one thing to sort of say like, hey, when it comes to Christ being king, I'm all in favor of it. Thumbs up, I'll vote for I it. vote, yeah. But I don't necessarily live that out. And I don't live necessarily as a subject of the king. Right. And it, it, to, to use it as sort of a, a metaphor for, for earthly kingship, or we don't have a king in the United States, but we are subject to our government. I mean, yeah, you, you, you vote for your government, but you also follow the government's laws. You pay your taxes. You... Well, but Paul, Paul yeah. says also in Philippians too, right? That, uh, you know, that every niche, you know, he was raised to the highest mm-hmm. place and every niche shall bow uh, above the earth and beneath the earth and on the earth. And so in the end, you will bow your knee one way or the other. Mm-hmm. And uh, so let's do that this weekend. Um, if you're listening to this or next, whenever you do listen to it, the last Sunday before Advent, the Feast of Christ the King. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Corey. Thank you. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts? And please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the church and its saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. And email me to let me know what you think. Greg at consideringcatholicism.com dot com.